Let's uh, pause for prayer and uh, open the word together. Lord, you are the God who never slumbers nor sleeps. Your emotional life is perfect and pure at all times in every way. Where ours may be faltering or in some cases shattering apart, you are our rock and our refuge, the one who never changes. You've promised to be with us forever. As believers, Lord, we are amazed that you, the God who right now is sustaining and managing the furthest reach of space that no telescope has ever looked at, love us. It's amazing to us, Lord, how you care for us every second of every day, want us changed into the image of your Son, work on us by your Holy Spirit. It's amazing to us, Lord, and we thank you for that. We thank you for your word that you have inspired that we are about to open together, and we pray that we would not only listen, but be obedient to your word, be doers of it. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. With apologies to Hugh, I don't see Hugh here, but on screen is a picture of Wayne Gretzky, or at least this is a picture of a wax figure of Wayne Gretzky that sits in a, in a museum in the Czech Republic, in Prague, in fact. Now, it's a decent likeness, I think, of the actual Wayne Gretzky, but of course, if you went to the museum in Prague and you spoke to this waxed, wax figure, asked for its autograph, you would get absolutely no reply. If you begged this wax figure to show off its skating skills, to demonstrate its passing skills, of course we know it would not move even half a millimeter. And as I was looking this week at how wax figures are made, it's amazing what happens in sermon prep, uh, I discovered that the head of a wax figure is hollow. There's nothing there. This, this Gretzky on screen has zero ability to think or to perceive having a hollow head. Instead, the statue, in fact, is made up of lifeless materials like wax and fiberglass and clay. Well, friends, about 2,900 years ago, there were many people in the northern kingdom of Israel who had come to put their trust in a God who was really no more than a dead wax figure. And the name of the God was Baal. That word Baal means owner, possessor, Lord. And these people in northern Israel had come to believe that Baal was the God who sent rain, that Baal was the God who gave fertility to the earth. They were convinced that Baal was the God whose life-giving rains were actually the ultimate source of the food that they enjoyed and their sustenance. Baal could be credited, they believed, with the grain and with the olive oil and with the wine that they 
enjoyed. And along with giving rain, they also believed that Baal controlled lightning and fire. So the story uh, of scripture from scripture that we're focused on this morning is uh, a story that happened actually only 50 years after Solomon had been king. So, um, yeah, the story of scripture uh, is there on screen, 1 Kings 18. After King Solomon, the, the unified kingdom, the kingdom that had been unified, had split in two. So that now you had the northern kingdom called Israel that had its own king, and you also had the southern kingdom called Judah that had its own king as well. And our story takes place in the northern kingdom. And the king in the north at this time was King Ahab with his lovely wife, Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel had been promoting and advocating for the worship of Baal. They were devout, in fact, in their worship of Baal. In fact, Ahab had already built a temple to the dead wax figure. Ahab had built a temple to Baal in the northern city of Samaria in clear violation, friends, of the first commandment, which stipulated that Israel should have no other gods before Yahweh. Ahab and Jezebel and the northerners with them had plunged into Baal worship even though they still paid a sort of lip service to Yahweh. Yahweh was still considered a god, in fact, in northern Israel. It's just that the thought was that Yahweh and Baal shared divine rule in the north. Well, Yahweh's prophet in the north at this time was Elijah. And a meeting was set up between Elijah and King Ahab, and we pick up the story now at 1 Kings 18, verse 17. Here's the, the meeting. It started. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Now, not a very nice greeting, is it? Ahab does not seem very keen on seeing Elijah. Ahab labels Elijah here as the troubler of Israel. Why does he do this? Well, because at the beginning of chapter 17, Elijah had come to Ahab in the name of Yahweh, prophesying by Yahweh that there would be no rain in Israel for a few years. And sure enough, by the time Ahab and Elijah meet up again here in chapter 18, there had been a drought in Israel that had lasted for a few years. So here Ahab perceives that Elijah, who had prophesied in this, he had prophesied the drought, that Elijah is the cause of Israel's troubles. Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Now, we have to wonder here why Ahab's god Baal hadn't, jumped in and sent rain. After all, was Baal not the god of rain? How in the world could there be any drought in Israel that lasted years if Baal was on the scene? And we have to conclude here that in sending this drought, Yahweh, God of Israel, was doing two things. First, he was cutting right to the heart 
of Baal worship. If Yahweh simply turned off the taps, if he prevented the rain from falling, he knew that the people would then cry out, wouldn't they, to Baal to have the rains come back, and they would cry all they wanted to their dead wax figure, and no rains would return. Why? Because Baal was a non-god. Baal had nothing to do with rain. Baal had nothing to do with anything else. His head was hollow, friends. We need to understand it was Yahweh who controlled the rain. The people must turn to Yahweh, the living God, Secondly, in withholding the rain and sending this drought, Yahweh was doing what? He was fulfilling his promise that he had made in Leviticus 26, that if the people of Israel set up idols, if the people of Israel failed to walk in his statutes, failed to be doers of his word, that he would withhold rain. As he said in Leviticus 26, 19, for a disobedient Israel, he would make the heavens like iron and the earth like bronze. The heavens like iron and the earth like bronze. No rain. And so for Ahab, as he sees, put yourself in his shoes for a minute, as he sees the land that he is ruling over, experiencing this terrible years-long drought, it should have tipped him off that maybe something was rotten, religiously speaking, in Israel. Maybe Ahab should have been looking in the mirror, and it's precisely this issue of Ahab's disobedience to Yahweh that Elijah now points out to Ahab in verse 18. So Ahab has just called Elijah the troubler of Israel. And now Elijah responds in a fearless and rather forceful way by saying to Ahab, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. You and, notice how cool Elijah is. You have. You and your father's house, because why? You have abandoned the commandments of Yahweh and followed the Baals. You see, friends, the real trouble in Israel was not Elijah and his efficacious prophesying, the real trouble was that the king of Israel, Ahab, had been unfaithful to Yahweh's covenant. Elijah says here that Ahab and his ilk had gone ahead and they had followed the Baals. Notice how it's plural here. The Baals. Each local area within northern Israel worshipped its own version of Baal. And so in scripture, we have the word Baal often attached to a variety of place names. For example, Baal Hermon, Baal Lebanon, Baal Tars, the Baals, dead, hollow-headed wax figures spread throughout the land, the Baals. In verse 19, the prophet Elijah continues his speech, and now lay, uh, uh, Elijah lays out a plan for Ahab. Notice, 
Here's what you must do, Ahab. Now therefore, send and gather, says Elijah, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Again, notice, friends, Elijah's daring confidence here. Notice his air of authority here. This prophet is commanding the king. How can Elijah be so courageous? Well, as the preacher G. Campbell Morgan once put it, I think this is good, he said, Elijah knows at this moment that his life is linked to the omnipotence, the omniscience, and the omnipresence of the living God. Yes, as believers, we can be courageous in whatever situation we are in, because our lives are linked with, united with, the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God, even as we traverse in a culture of dead idols. Elijah chooses Mount Carmel as the place where the crowds should gather. Now, he's purposeful in his choice. Mount Carmel sat on the border between Israel and Phoenicia, and Phoenicia was where Jezebel had come from. And in one ancient Assyrian record, Mount Carmel is called Mountain of Baal. And so it seems that this particular mountain was associated with Baal worship. And so we might put it like this, that on Mount Carmel, Baal had home ice advantage. Jezebel had been instrumental in bringing heavy Baal worship into Israel. Now Elijah and Yahweh his God would meet the wax figure Baal on his own turf. Let's go forward to verses 20 and 21. Notice here how the king simply obeys the prophet's command. <laughs> it's really something to behold. No questions asked. Ahab just obeys the prophet. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. So here they are, all these many hundreds of people on Mount Carmel, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions. If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Now, in the original Hebrew text here, the sense is that the people have been hopping between two crutches, wavering between two opinions, on the fence, ambivalent with mixed feelings about following Baal or following Yahweh. As Terence Fretheim puts it, they had been hedging their bets by keeping one foot in the Yahweh camp and the other in the Baal camp. While Elijah, with Yahweh speaking through him, will have none of it. 
Elijah calls the people to take sides, to end the fence sitting. It's an either or situation. Either Yahweh or Baal. This business of halting between two opinions must now end. Now we might be tempted, maybe uh, part of it is because we're Canadians, uh, we might be tempted to say that, well, in sitting on the fence, they were, in fact, undecided between Yahweh and Baal. They, they, aren't they just taking a safe, neutral sort of position, and what's wrong with that? Wasn't it okay for them to remain neutral? No, it wasn't. It wasn't okay because in fact, friends, this wavering, we need to see this, this wavering, this fence sitting was not neutrality. Rather, it was apostasy. This fence sitting was in fact a desertion of or an abandonment of the Israelite faith because it clearly violated the first commandment which demands the exclusive Worship of Yahweh, God of Israel, who has revealed himself, we know, fully in Jesus Christ. Our faith is a faith that demands exclusivity. Not terribly popular in our culture. No other gods before me. No room for fence sitting. No room for a smorgasbord approach where you have a little of this God and a little of that God. So Elijah says here, now a side must be taken. The choice must be made. If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And like so many in our Canadian culture these days who seem to have a huge problem with clear-cut categories of truth and error, the people there on Mount Carmel don't know what to do with Elijah's either-or kind of thinking. They don't answer. They're stunned into silence on this notion that they cannot stick with their smorgasbord approach to religion, polytheism. Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of Yahweh, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. We have to wonder here, where have the 400 prophets of Asherah, who were mentioned uh, in verse 19, where have they disappeared to? Suddenly, they've evaporated, and we're left with only the 450 prophets of Baal. But do notice the numbers here, friends. Notice the numbers in verse 22. One prophet on Yahweh's side, and how many on Baal's side? 450. Sometimes as Christians living in 2023, we feel exactly like Elijah did. Like as the church, we are increasingly the minority opinion, which we are, within the culture. One versus 450. Well, we need to remind ourselves, as we've been trying to do throughout this sermon series, that sheer numbers don't seem to be a factor for God. As Dale Ralph Davis says, quote, Yahweh's power has never depended on how many cheerleaders he has. 
Yahweh's power has never depended on how many cheerleaders he has. There's Elijah alone on that mountain, facing hundreds of Baal prophets, but it doesn't matter because actually, friends, actually Elijah is far from alone, right? Yahweh is with him. Now, just notice here that so far, at least on paper, everything is stacking up in favor of Baal and his prophets. Mount Carmel is home ice advantage for Baal, and Baal has a 450 to one margin in terms of prophets. So things are shaping up rather nicely for Baal. In verses 23 and 24, Elijah doles out yet more instructions. He says, let two bulls be given to us. Here's what we'll do. And let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you, you prophets of Baal, you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered in Captain Picard fashion, make it so, or it is well spoken. So they agree to Elijah's terms here. Now, remember friends, the dead wax figure Baal was supposedly the God in control of fire. Now, wasn't this a further advantage for Baal then, along with the uh, home ice advantage and the 450 to one profit margin, no pun intended, Baal was the god who sent fire and lightning. Fire was Baal's specialty. And Elijah had set up this fire-based contest. Isn't this perfect for Baal? This would be an easy victory for Baal, just as Baal had so easily ended the years of drought being the god of rain, now surely he'd send fire on this bull sacrifice, right? Again, wax figures, friends, have hollow heads. There's nothing there. And I'm quite sure, as we read this text carefully, that all along, Elijah knows this perfectly well. He knows that Baal is a hollow-headed wax figure. Verse 25, Elijah gives the Baal prophets a further advantage here. Notice this. He lets them choose their bull first, and he lets them call on their God first. If Baal sends fire, it's over. He gives them first choice. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. Verse 26. And they took the bowl that was given them, just picture the scene here, and they prepared it and called upon the name of the hollow-headed wax figure, Baal. For how long? From morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But, wow, there was no voice. And no one answered. And they limped around the altar 
they had made. Now, do notice that, friends. Notice the length of the praying here from morning until noon for several hours. Just picture it. The Baal prophets are calling out and praying to the hollow-headed non-god. O Baal, answer us, hour upon hour upon hour they do that, and nothing, absolutely nothing. Why hasn't Baal responded? And these prophets, notice, they also limp around the altar. They, they do a sort of dance of some kind around the altar of Baal. They engage here in what Ralph Davis calls liturgical hoopla. And the idea here is this, that, that hey, if we expend all this energy, if we, if we do this dance and we continue to call out for all these hours, then surely our strenuous efforts will cause Baal to respond with fire. We are the ones who must stir up our God so that he acts. My friends, it's so easy for us as Christians, I want you to listen carefully, to start thinking like the prophets of Baal. If we're not very careful. What I do for God will stir him to action. What I do for him will manipulate him to act on my behalf. Now, it's good and it's right and it's in keeping with our obedience to the Lord that we involve ourselves, of course we should, in ministries of various kinds, but we must always, always prayerfully check our motives. We must beware of branching into a Baalistic approach. And the Apostle John says to the church, speaking to the church, to us, for very good reason in 1 John 5, 21, he says to the church, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Because he knows that idols and idol-style thinking are very much a possibility in the church. Well, the prophets of Baal are there on Mount Carmel. They are exhausting themselves, just get the picture, exhausting themselves in all their liturgical hoopla, all these antics. And then we get verse 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. So apparently trash talking is not out of bounds for God's prophets. So he's watched all these hours of antics from the prophets of Baal, and Elijah says to him, let's go through what he says. He says, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, in other words, either he is deep in thought, lost in his thoughts, or, says Elijah, maybe Baal is relieving himself. It's in the Bible. Yeah, maybe Baal's on a bathroom break. Can't be reached for comment. Or, says Elijah, maybe Baal is on a journey. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe Baal has gone off on a Mediterranean sea vacation and he's decided to turn his phone off. 
Or, says Elijah, perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. In contrast to Yahweh God of Israel, who neither slumbers nor sleeps, according to Psalm 121, verse 4. And so the question that rings out from this verse is this question. Where is your hollow-headed, lifeless, wax-figure God when you need him most? Where is he when you need your idol to come through? I don't know, friends. It's almost like Baal cannot be counted on. The prophets of Baal hear this mockery from Elijah, and guess what? They do like Ahab had done. They follow his command. (laughs) Notice how commanding the prophet is here. They follow his command. They cry louder, and they take it up even a notch further. Verse 28, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. Notice this, friend, they go to these extremes, these extreme measures, their reputation is at stake, so they go to these extreme measures to get Baal to respond. Baal, we've danced for you. Baal, we've cried out to you for hours, and now look, Baal, we are cutting ourselves open and blood is gushing out. Answer us. Verse 29. And as midday passed, so notice now day is getting on. It's getting toward dusk. The sun is low. It adds to the drama of what's going to happen soon. (laughs) As midday passed, they raved on like madmen before their dead, hollow-headed God. They raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, the evening sacrifice. But, wonder of wonders, there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Okay. Time's up. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And the people came near to him. What's Elijah doing here? He's summoning the people close for a time of worship. And he repaired the altar of Yahweh that had been thrown down. So here on Baal's mountain, where Baal had home ice advantage, there had been this altar to Yahweh, and now Elijah repairs this altar. You can see in this ruined altar something of the spiritual state of this entire region. As Herman Ostel put it, the altar's disarray is a visible reminder of the people's broken spiritual condition. Verses 31 and 32, Elijah took how many stones? Twelve stones significantly, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of Yahweh came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of Yahweh. Notice carefully, friends, that the altar that Elijah sets up is made of 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, representing the people of God, so that this altar is symbolically connected with the people of Israel. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain 
two sias of seed. Now, two sias of seed would translate into just over 14 and a half liters of water. So the trench would hold a little more than 14 and a half liters. Verse 33, and he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And now Elijah is going to purposely load the dice against himself. Elijah now is going to take a step that is calculated to give him a very apparent disadvantage. Elijah says, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Now, I remember many years ago now camping with my brother on a fishing trip at Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan. We got to the camping uh, site way too late, and it was pouring rain. And so there we were setting up our tent in the pouring rain. We hadn't eaten for several hours, so we thought, we have to eat. To eat, we need to build a fire. So then we went out after the tent set up and we're searching in the dark for wood. <clears throat> it was all soaked. <coughs> and it took hours to get a fire going and cook our little pieces of chicken over it. I think we ended up eating at about 2 a.m. that night. Well, Elijah soaks the wood here on purpose. Elijah, he wants to show how Yahweh has no obstacles. Yes? how Yahweh has no obstacles. When Yahweh sends fire, it's not going to matter one whit that the wood is wet. The fire is going to come and Yahweh is going to get glory because Yahweh is the one who controls fire and not Baal. And as Elijah, he pours out, all, notice all this very precious water in a time of drought, severe drought, when that water might be useful for other purposes. Why does he do this? Because Elijah knows that Yahweh controls the rain. And Yahweh is about to open up the heavens again and let the water pour out. Verses 36 and 37. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, so at the evening offering time, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Now notice very carefully, friends, does Elijah limp and dance around the altar to Yahweh? No. Does Elijah rant and rave and blabber on for hours? No. Does Elijah cut himself in an attempt to get Yahweh's attention? No. Elijah simply and calmly prays a two-verse prayer. And in his prayer, Elijah emphasizes his own obedience 
to Yahweh's word, as he says, I have done all these things at your word. And Elijah also emphasizes the real need here. The real need in verse 37 is not as much fire from Yahweh, it is rather that Israel would once again know that Yahweh is God. That's the real need that the hearts of God's people would turn back to Yahweh and away from their wax figures, away from their idols. Elijah prays this very simple two-verse prayer as he stands beside the soaked wood, and then we get verses 38 and 39. Then, see the glory here, friends, just as at the exact moment when Elijah ended his prayer, what happened? The fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, what happened? They fell on their faces. And as Paul House says, it was at, that, at this exact moment that the people became strict monotheists believing in only one God named Yahweh. They say as they're fallen on their faces, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Indeed, the living God, my friends, has won the contest here, has won the battle for the hearts of his people. He's won this battle over the wax figure. Now, as we wrap this toward a close, there are three things that we need to note about this fire that comes from Yahweh. First of all, I want you to notice the effect of the fire. Notice how comprehensively scorching this fire is. The fire doesn't just burn up the soaked wood, it utterly consumes the sacrificial bull the 12 stones, the dust, the water in the trench, it basically obliterates everything. Now think about an average bull, male bull, weighing uh, between 16 and 1700 pounds. That's a lot of meat and gristle that God's fire burns in a very big hurry. So this was no low and slow barbecue like I like. This was a scorchingly hot fire to burn this massive animal in such quick fashion. An incredibly hot fire that turns even a massive animal to cinders in, in a very brief time. Just to be clear, this was a fire and not lightning. The word in Hebrew is the word that we translate as fire. There are several other Hebrew words in the Old Testament that we translate as lightning, but none of them are used here. This was a miraculous, super-duper heated fire that defied the laws of nature because it came downward instead of going upward like all, all other fires do. The second thing to notice about this fire is its meaning. Its meaning. In Leviticus 9.24, fire from Yahweh had consumed Aaron's burnt offering. And when the fire came and consumed Aaron's burnt offering, it signified God's acceptance of Aaron's offering. Likewise, at the completion of the temple, 
fire from Yahweh had come, 2 Chronicles 7.1, to consume the burnt offering as well, signifying the acceptance of God of that offering. When fire comes on Mount Carmel and consumes the sacrificial bull, what's happening? God is signifying, listen, he's signifying his acceptance of Elijah's offering. The way back to Yahweh, living God, for Baal-worshipping Israel was through an acceptable sacrifice. And in his grace, God accepts this bull that Elijah has prepared. And then finally, after the effect and the meaning, notice the target. The target of the fire. The target of God's fire, and this is glorious, the target of the fire might well have been the rebellious Baal-worshipping people of Israel. But instead, the fire's target is the sacrifice on the altar. God diverts the fire from his sinful people so that obliterates the acceptable sacrifice instead. Now, I want you to listen, my friends. Although there are no doubt several humorous elements, and there are in 1 Kings 18, we need to understand very well that God took sin seriously, very seriously. He took the sinful rebellion of the prophets of Baal very seriously. Our God is a God who takes apostasy, who takes idolatry, who takes rebellion against him very, very Seriously. In Deuteronomy 13, God had stipulated that if a so-called prophet was to come along in Israel and pull the people of Israel toward the worship of a God other than Yahweh, that idolatrous prophet was to be put to death. And sure enough, in verse 40 of 1 Kings 18, Elijah puts to death the unrepentant prophets of Baal. You see, friends, apostasy and a walking away from the true God to worship idols, to worship wax figures, this is entirely serious to God. The prophets of Baal are slain. We need to understand that in his justice and in his holiness, God must deal with the apostasy and the rebellion and the disobedience and the sin of his human creatures. And for you and I, it's like this. Either the wrath of God remains upon us, to quote Jesus in John 3.36, Either the wrath of God remains upon us because of our unrepentant disobedience, or we surrender to the Jesus who seeks us, opening our empty hands to receive the forgiveness that he paid for with his life on the cross.
either the fiery wrath of God will finally be poured out on us. I want you to listen to me. This is very serious from the word of God. Either the fiery wrath of God will be poured out on us for our willful rebellion, unrepentant rebellion against God, or we repent and we receive the one on the altar. The one on the cross, the one who absorbed the fire of God as the acceptable sacrifice that paid our sin debt in full. If Jesus is Lord, follow him. But if a wax figure, follow him. My testimony is this, the fire of God on my sin, I'm a sinner, the fire of God on my sin fell on Jesus, my sacrificial substitute. He took what I deserved on his cross. He died in my place so that I might be forgiven. 32 years ago to the month, February 1991, I heard the gospel for the first time in my life. And I repented and I surrendered to him and I received him as he sought me and he had been seeking me. He is my Lord and he is my savior. I know that God has received me as his dear child because of the sacrifice of his son whose righteousness has been imputed to me in place of my own pathetic and worthless righteousness. And so my friend, how about you? I don't care how many years you've been in church. How about you? Are you saved this morning? Is Jesus your Lord and your Savior? Do you know him? Are you in a vital relationship with the resurrected Lord? Have you repented of your sin and received him as your greatest treasure? And are you enjoying the abundant life that he gives? Will you slam the door in the face of your wax figures and turn to Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we live in a world where we play at so many things. We get numbed out to realities because of so many diversions and distractions, Disneyland. But you don't play in your word because you love us and you want our hearts to turn to you. And I pray this morning if there is someone here in, in the sound of the preaching who has not turned to you, Lord, that by your spirit you would draw, convict, bring that person home to your heart. 
And Father, as we walk out the door later today, I pray for each and every one of us that by your Spirit, you would nudge us, help us to recognize the wax figures all around, the wax figures that we are flirting with. And may our hearts turn back to you, our God, our living God, the one in whom is life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.